Welcome to the Peer Review Podcast, the Bosch Young Investigator's Guide to Science and Beyond. You're with your hosts, Leila Fuwani and Aaron Giles. Today at the Peer Review Podcast, we are thankful to have with us one of Australia's favourite doctors. Welcome, Dr. Carl. It is great to have you on board with us today. Uh, well, I'm not a real doctor. I'm only a medical doctor, so I'm not going to be like you guys, a PhD doctor, which is the real sort of doctor, but thank you very much. So firstly, let's talk space, because I know you dabble. Uh, there, have been a lot, there has been a lot of attention this week on gravitational waves and neutrons with scientists getting really excited. Uh, we basically want to know what's got everyone so worked up. Ah, okay. Um, in physics, there are the four forces. These explain everything that we can understand in the universe as of uh, late 2017. And these four forces are the gravity force, which is really weak, the strong nuclear force, which is really strong, holds the centre of the atom together, the weak nuclear force involved in radioactivity, and the electromagnetic force. Forget the nuclear forces. Let's just stick with the electromagnetic force. Until now, all of our astronomy has been to do with the electromagnetic force. We pick up electromagnetic radiation. We pick up light with our optical telescopes, X-rays with our X-ray telescopes, and so forth with infrared, gamma ray, um, X-ray, uh, microwave, radio, all that sort of stuff. Until now, beginning with Galileo in the 1600s, until now, every single telescope has looked at electromagnetic radiation, which is travelling on the background time-space continuum of the universe. Okay, what is this time-space continuum? Well, um, you can go backwards and forwards. Uh, that's your first dimension. You can go left and right. That's your second dimension. You can go up and down. That's your third dimension. And Einstein showed that the fourth dimension, which is time, ticking along normally at one second per second, is the fourth dimension. And so these four dimensions, three space dimensions, one time dimension, this is the background fabric of the universe. And all of our previous astronomy involved electromagnetic rays or radiation that travelled on the background. But now we've actually found distortions in the fabric of space. So what is gravity? Gravity is a distortion in the fabric of space-time. And John Wheeler from the University of Texas at Austin said it really well. He said, um, mass tells time-space how to change shape and the changed shape of time space tells mass where to go so you have something for example like a big um, mass like the sun and suddenly it distorts the fabric of space time creates a big dent in it like the mental image of a bowling ball on a trampoline and then along comes a little comet and it, its path gets changed by that curved space what we have detected is ripples or are ripples in the fabric of time space stuff that doesn't get stopped by dust or by light it just is underneath everything we have uh, it took us a century to do it but we humans can uh, detect when a gravitational wave comes rippling through the earth that the whole earth changes in size by two and a half times the diameter of a proton and we can measure that. In fact, what we did measure was over a much smaller length where we can measure a change in distance of one-tenth of a thousandth, one-ten-thousandth of the diameter of a proton. We measured that, and that was what the change in length was of the arms of the machine that we built. And we could then say quite reliably that we picked up 
a gravitational wave. So we've opened up a new form of astronomy um, and at the same time recently we found an object that was associated with that, a neutro- two neutron stars that banged into each other. We found where they were in the sky and we're very confident they turned into a black hole. And by the way, a black hole has got no size. Now, does that blow your mind, Dr. Yeah, yeah. So think about this. You've got a, a neutron star, which is about 10 or 20 kilometres across, and two of them come together. And now instead of weighing each three times the mass of the sun, they might weigh, say, six times the mass of the sun, but they have a size of zero. Not just small, not an atom, not a proton, not smaller than a proton, but no size at all because black holes have no size. That blows my mind. So that was a big excitement that we actually found an object in the heavens that corresponded to the gravitational wave event. So this whole new field of astronomy called gravitational wave astronomy was born in the last year or so. Now, here's something really weird. Way back on the uh, 14th of September in the year 2015, um, a gravitational wave rippled through the Earth. On the same day... Tony Abbott got deposed as the Prime Minister of Australia. A scientific paper was written. What were the names of the first three authors of that paper? Could not tell you. <laughs> Abbott, Abbott and Abbott. Wow. 24 cans and a slab of beer, 24 hours in a day. It's not a coincidence. There are forces there controlling the world that we don't know about. So now without sounding stalkerish, you work at, this, at Sydney University and there's this brand new facility called the Nanoscience Hub. Can you give our listeners an idea of what exactly nanoscience is and, and what can we actually use it for? Okay, nanoscience in this particular case refers to quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is really weird and it doesn't make sense except for the fact that it does. And the way that it does make sense is that in your smartphone there is something called a semiconductor. In fact, there's several million of them. And sometimes this bit of stuff is a conductor. And sometimes the same bit of stuff is not a conductor. It's an insulator. How can it be two different things? And that is quantum mechanics. So it all goes back to Heisenberg and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which says if you've got a moving object, um, then either you can know its position or you can know its momentum, but you can't know both exactly at the same time. And this is not due to fuzziness in our measuring abilities. It's due to inherent fuzziness of the universe. There are some things that are inherently fuzzy, and so you end up with a situation where, for example, something can come from nothing. Have you heard about that one, Dr. Layla? No, I haven't, unfortunately. Okay, it's kind of equivalent to the teenage kids borrowing the family car on a Saturday night and providing they borrow it for a short enough period of time and put it back, it never happened. And so, thanks to the inherent fuzziness of the universe, if over a short period of time you've got nothing and then suddenly a positive and negative appear out of nothing and then recombine and vanish again, that is theoretically possible and we actually see it happening where something comes from nothing. 
Okay, what about my hand? My hand is here on the end of my arm. In quantum mechanics, an electron is both going around the core of a nucleus and everywhere else in the universe at the same time. And you're thinking, oh, my God, what on earth are they talking about? How can this be true? It is true. And then there's quantum entanglement where you can have two objects that are married to each other. They were created as part of the same reaction. And they know the other particle even across the edge of the universe. And if something happens to one particle, then the other particle knows about it in zero time at faster than the speed of light. And you think this is crazy but no, we're using it all the time. So the nanoscience building has both uh, theoretical and practical quantum physics professors. There's people who think about the weird crap and there's people who make the weird crap. And you should wander through the building and you will see that uh, there are a whole lot of posters and their posters show their happy sponsors and they're sponsored by the NSA, whom you would recognise as the National Security Agency of America who gave us Edward Snowden dot, dot, dot. (laughs) So they're trying to bust the credit card security that keeps your computer safe and your credit card number safe. That's their job. In that building, they are trying to bust your credit card and one day they may well do it. The Peer Review Podcast is brought to you by POCD Scientific, an Australian-owned manufacturer of quality stains and other reagents for pathology, a supplier of solvents and a distributor of many brands of scientific equipment and consumables for the Life Science Laboratory. Next, I wanted to talk government and what are they not telling us? So... The recording will probably probably spontaneously cut out through this question, but our government appears to be seemingly in denial about it, with fossil fuels still, still being pursued at large here in Australia for energy. Um, but as scientists, can you give us a rundown on climate change and why we need to address it? Um, climate change is where we change the climate via any one of a different number of methods. In this case, we've accidentally gone down a pathway of throwing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So we do that by the accidental reaction of carbon. We burn carbon, combine it with oxygen. That gives you carbon dioxide plus heat, and we use the heat for everything. And when you think about a barrel of oil which is your sort of base unit in terms of energy. You can buy a barrel of oil for about $50 to $100, depending on what the market's doing in this particular day or year. And that barrel of oil has the energy of two strong men working eight hours a day, five days a week for a whole year. For a dollar or two, you can buy two strong men's labour for a whole week. So fossil fuels have got incredible energy, but they dump carbon dioxide. And the physics was well worked out a few centuries ago, and now we're seeing the experiment in real time, which is that the sun emits heat. The heat goes through the atmosphere because it's at a low temperature of around 6,000 degrees. It doesn't see the carbon dioxide, goes straight through it, down to the ground, heats up the ground. The ground then tries to radiate this heat back to space and a lot of it goes back into space and vanishes but because we put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere it hits the carbon dioxide and then is re-radiated back down to the ground so the carbon dioxide is acting like a semi-silvered mirror where it reflects some but not all of the heat it's not really reflecting we call it scattering in physics but reflecting is good enough how much heat the amount of heat is a bunch of hyd- of atom bombs per day. How many? 400,000. Every day, the um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere 
bounces back down to the ground and doesn't allow it to go into space, but reflects it down to the ground. 400,000 Hiroshima bombs worth of heat per day. Uh, luckily, that heat does not stay in the atmosphere. If it did, we'd be dead. Air temperature would be up around 75 degrees centigrade. But 93% of it goes into the ocean. We've measured it, heating up the ocean. So we talked about it a century or two ago. We saw it happening. 1973, the world's largest reinsurance company, Munich Ray, thought, oh, my God, this thing the scientists are talking about, which they then called the greenhouse effect, is real. It's real, they said in 1973. We are cranking up our insurance premiums. Now, remember that the insurance companies, they've got no hard feelings. They're just dealing with the facts. If they see effect, give me the money. You're costing me money, pay me more. So they started factoring climate change into insurance premiums in 1973. In 1988 and 89, the scientists said, yes, climate change is real over a quarter of a century ago. And for about one year, the fossil fuel companies argued about it. And we've got the emails where they said, what do we do about it? And we've got the emails that said, well, let's just follow the tobacco industry, deny that it happened. So even today, the tobacco industry denies that tobacco is harmful and denies that it is addictive, even today. And even today, the fossil fuel companies, with uh, much more success, are denying that global warming is real. It's a shame. Well, we're looking at a five to eight metre ocean level rise by the end of this century. But there is good news. Um, the first bit of good news is that we can get all of our electricity entirely from renewables within 10 years. We can get all of our transport energy costs from renewables within 15 years. Agriculture is going to be harder because it's alive. I'm, I'm counting on half a century for that. And in addition to bringing our carbon dioxide that we dump into the atmosphere down towards zero, we can, with machines that have already been developed in Switzerland, we can actually suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. These machines are the size of two big containers, like the huge containers that you see on the back of semi-trailers. 25 million of these machines would suck out a year's worth of carbon dioxide generated by humans out of the atmosphere. 25 million, not a big number because we humans already make 100 million cars each year. So there's nothing stopping us except the political will, which is why I'm saying to you, Layla, and you, Erin, that you should both go into politics. <laughs> and the actual laughing shows that you don't believe it because you've been convinced that politics is dumb. But if you don't go into politics, bad people will. And so you are both condemned to shouting at the television when the bad people do things that will affect you and your children. And they're doing them now and they have been doing it since 1989. You see, in some parts of the world, power grows out of the barrel of a gun. In Australia and in much of the world, it grows out of the politics. So if you don't get into politics, people will go into politics, people who are mad, bad or crazy or any combination of the above, and some of, the, uh, of them are already in politics denying that global warming is real. And as a result, your children will be affected by a five to eight metre ocean level rise by the end of this century, and that's based on po the positive feedback loops being real. Now, these machines to suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, we can build them. The best example I'll give is the 7th of December, 1941. Does that ring a bell for you? I know you weren't born then, but do you know your history? 7th of December, 1941? That's Pearl Harbour. Pearl Harbour Day. Yeah. Within nine months, the number of cars made by the American car factories was zero.
Mm. Within two years, they were pumping out all the car factories, and there were lots of them built, were pumping out these huge bombers like the B-17. Now, the B-17, it's a pretty big sort of bomber, 20 metres by 30 metres, weighing 30 tonnes, a crew of 10 uh, 10 tonnes um, payload and um, a cruise range of there and back of about 5,000 kilometres. Big planes, and they were pumping them out, not at the rate of one a month. Each factory was pumping them out at one per hour. Oh, yeah. If we decide, and the we decide involves politics, if we decide that we want to go down this pathway we can not only stop global warming but reverse it by building 289 factories which will pump these machines out to suck carbon dioxide out uh, at the rate of one an hour. So at the end of a year, you've got two and a half million of these machines. At the end of 10 years, you've got 25 million. But it won't happen unless you personally go into politics, Layla and Erin. And if you just sort of say, oh, the politicians are crooked and then you spend your time shouting at the TV, you had your chance to go into politics. It's a very compelling argument for us to we'll get a bit more I engaged, especially... Well, if I'd have your vote, that'd be nice. Carl, as a start, there's one. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll vote for all of you. Um, uh, I, I myself ran for politics and failed, and out of the 782,000 votes needed to get into politics, into the Federal Senate for New South Wales in the year 2007, out of those 780,000 votes, I got 42,000 votes under the line, which apparently is the maximum ever recorded. Do you know what under the line means? Under the line means that instead of when you come to vote for the upper house, instead of getting this huge sheet of paper the size of a tablecloth and ticking one and then walking away, <laughs> you then tick one to 200, not duplicating your numbers even once, and you make your vote count. And I got 42,000. And the reason was we didn't have enough publicity and the reason was we didn't have enough money because all at $5,000 bought us on TV was a 30-second advertisement, but at a really unattractive time. Mm. Three o'clock, Sunday morning, after the Stay Sharp Knives, the Abdominizer and the Nonstick <laughs> Fry Pan, but before the born-again fundamentalist gun-toting redneck Christians from Texas on the televangelists. And so as a result, there's still a quarter of a million dollar debt to be paid off. But I learned a lot, which is that you should go into politics. Lyndon B. Johnson said, and to put it politely, you're better off on the inside of the tent urinating out rather than on the outside of the tent urinating in. <laughs> the second uh, positive note is that you guys are smarter than me by nine IQ points on average. It's called the Flynn Effect. And the third one is that we're living in the most... You're familiar with the Flynn Effect? No. I am. Yes. <laughs> Every generation gets smarter than the last. By nine IQ points. Yes, the way we know this is because Americans learn geography by invading another country uh, every 14 months for the last 240 years. And so since 1932, tens of millions of people have gone into the military and every single one has had an IQ test under military standards. And we can see the IQ climbing, as we can in every other country in the world that does IQ tests on its kids. And the third one, have you read the book The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker? Yeah. Um, we are living in the most peaceful time ever in the history of the human race. The reason you don't think so is because the evil media, uh, which has the motto, if it bleeds, it leads. So every time you turn, the average person approaches their smartphone 150 times a day. So if you count 15 hours as a waking day, uh, that's once every six minutes. 
Don't these people have time to do work? And there's all this really negative news coming down and it overwhelms you sometimes. And what you can do, I've done this as a bit of an experiment, ask your friends to just simply retweet to you only positive news for the next 24 hours. And it's amazing how it changes your attitude. I had a few other questions for you. I just wanted to ask, so why do scientists in particular suffer from the imposter syndrome? Tell me about the imposter syndrome. The feeling that they're an imposter in their own field. Ah, that's a subset of having too much knowledge. So sometimes somebody will ask me a question and I will see a thousand possibilities popping up inside my n-dimensional mind space with my data bank of knowledge and I've got to sum it up and the easiest one I can go for is yes and no. And that really annoys them. They just want a yes or a no, not both. Uh, and in the case of the scientists, they can all too often see themselves accurately. And that is both a curse and a benefit. And it's up to you to realise that it is what is and then to use it as a benefit and not use it to paralyse you into inaction by your supposed false. I just want to sort of pivot to ask you a bit more of a personal question. Mm -hmm. The Dr. Carl brand is sort of a household name really now. Um, uh, like, I'm just curious how you sort of made yourself that that name, that household name? It was a total accident. Yeah. Um, it began, well, it's kind of like my life being like a paddle pop stick in the gutter of life on a rainy day just <laughs> washed by currents and there have been all these currents. I could have been in entirely different pathways. On two occasions, I could have ended up in jail. We all make mistakes at different times in our lives. It's kind of like having training wheels. And if you don't make a mistake, you don't make anything. And if you happen to make the wrong sort of mistake at the wrong time in the wrong place, you can end up in a lot of trouble. Like, so at one extreme, you can be a wealthy white person in a certain part of America smoking marijuana, or you can be a poor black Muslim person in a different part of America smoking the same amount of dope. And in one case, you'll go to jail. In the other case... I look the other way. And that was the kind of things that happened. I, I, none of it was sort of violence to other people type stuff. And if it had gone bad, I could have ended up getting really friendly with my jailmate in prison and ending up with love and hate tattooed on my knuckles and joining the Hells Angels and being outside your brother's and sister's primary school at the end of the day with a big beer gut sitting on the back of a Harley trying to sell them methamphetamine. And it didn't happen because I was lucky along the way. So the best advice I ever had was ignore opinions and stick to the facts. And so that was then combined with me getting rejected from NASA for their space program. And so I ended up talking to Double J as it was then about the space program, then getting involved with the space shuttle launch. And then things just sort of drifted along, but always following the basic rule of ignore opinions, stick to the facts. And when you don't know, just say you don't know. And when you make a mistake, uh, admit it. And then suddenly after the third of a century, I'm an overnight success. No idea how. I also wanted to ask you, as a quite a um, well-known science communicator, how you um, 
how do you think the state of science communication is and, and whether we need to start recruiting more scientists to uh, come and, and actually talk in front of, in front of the media about their specialised areas? It's hard. You don't expect a plumber to also be a chef. So why would you expect a scientist who's really good at their research to be able to describe it to a layperson? It's a whole different skill. And trying to get both those skills in one person is hard work, but you can do it with a lot of training. It's worthwhile doing, worthwhile going entirely into science communication to try and put forward the knowledge. It'll work with some people. The trouble is that we filter what comes to us through our prejudices. When you're finding the facts, I suppose, like for your, your written pieces, do you collaborate with the researchers who you're... you're writing about like do you contact them and say is this how you i try to uh but the time schedule is such that i don't always have the time to do that so what i normally do is email them and send them the story afterwards and that's not as good and sometimes i'll change the written text if i've made a mistake because you can get the facts mostly right but you might have the emphasis wrong which is a subtlety that you can see in normal conversation or family discourse or science which sometimes gets lost in politics Dr. Carl, thank you very much for stopping by the Peer Review Podcast. We really appreciate your time. Oh, shucks, I'm not worthy, but thank you. <laughs> thank thank you. you, Dr. Carl. Cheers. Thank you, bye-bye. That was the final episode of the Peer Review Podcast for 2017. Keep a lookout in the new year for new upcoming episodes of the Peer Review. You can subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher, and you can contact us via Twitter at Peer Review Pod. From all the team at the Peer Review Podcast, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.